0: Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. This year for Advent, this is our first week of Advent, Um, so we'll be exploring the Old Testament book called Ruth. So for those of you that are fans of Ruth, you're welcome. Um, And for those of you that are not familiar, you're going to get familiar uh, throughout this month of December. And so if you've got your Bible, turned to the book of Ruth. Um, you can also follow along on the screens. We're going to start, obviously, right at the very beginning, chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it a little different. We're going we're to go through the whole of the chapter, chapter 1. Um, but uh, we're just gonna, I'm going to read small chunks of it, and then we'll stop and reflect as best as we can. And then we'll keep going. And So we'll read it as we go. All right? And so Ruth one, Ruth 1, verse 1 starting at the very beginning of the story. We're just going to read down to verse 5, and then we'll, we'll think about that a little bit. All right, so here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Mahalon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Whew. It's quite an opening paragraph, isn't it? <laughs> the opening scene of this, to kind of for those of you who are familiar Um, The opening scene reminds me, it reminded me all week as I was prepping of Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road. Um, For those of you familiar with it, you're already like, oh, he's going there? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm going there. The story doesn't take long on the road. It's a a novel and it's a film as well. The story doesn't take long to become bleak, dystopian-like. The suffering of the story hits you in the face, like immediately. Um, The Road, the story is an apocalyptic story of a father and a son walking southbound uh, through what is a barren wasteland of an earth. The people who are survivors, most of them are dangerous and sick, to say the least, that's all I'll say of it. Um, And both the novel and the film, it will really test your mettle if you've got the stomach for it, if you haven't. And I'm not necessarily recommending it. Uh, It's a rough one uh, to read and to watch. Um, It's not for the faint of heart. I actually sat down this week and rented the film uh, just to refresh my memory of it. And uh, my wife, who sat down with me, bailed in 10 minutes in. She said, I'm good, I'm going to bed, I can't do this. And and I said, this is homework for me. Um, This is what we're doing. So... I wanted to be refreshed in the storyline because I, I, I. here's the thing. I wanted, to, I wanted to get inside the head of Naomi. You know what I mean? Like when you just read the first paragraph, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Ruth, but just reading that opening paragraph, it's like, woof, man, rough. And I wanted to get inside of her head. Like I, I, I'm trying to immerse myself in what it must feel like and what the author wants you to feel for Naomi. I, I wanted to be in the emotional place that the author is aiming at in chapter one. And the setting of McCarthy's The Road is like this. It's, it's desolation, you know? It's, there is no sun, at least one that you can see. The trees in the story are just falling constantly from rot. Uh, there's murder, and starvation just seems inevitable, like every minute of the day. But this father and his son keep walking this road looking for something good. Uh, they're 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 looking for safety. They're looking for relief, and getting no signs of it anywhere. And along the journey, along the road, you f- begin to feel this nagging question: What will keep them going? This is awful. And you're not totally sure. You you know if you're you're reading or you're watching the film, you're just like, where are they going to get a sense of you know you know forward motion? Repeatedly in the novel, at least, the, the father keeps speaking of a fire that's inside them. And at one point, I'll just give you this dialogue here. At one point, the little boy speaks to the father this way He says, We're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? Father back, Yes, we are. And nothing bad is going to happen to us. That's right. Because we're carrying the fire? Yes, because we're carrying the fire. The road does have a hopeful ending, but here's the thing, and if if you're familiar with it, you know this. There is absolute tragedy and uncertainty along the way. That's the complexity of it. That's the complexity and the beauty of it. It's a story, the road is a story of incredible loss, also incredible loyalty, and incredible love. And the reason why I highlight that is because that is exactly how you need to understand the book of Ruth. It's a story of incredible loss, incredible loyalty, and incredible love. But it begins, as you just read, in total tragedy. Notice the author does this thing. He or she compresses time into just, you know, he he boils 10 years down into five verses so that you feel like the sad, hard things are coming at this woman, Naomi, in just repeated waves. Naomi's whole life is being dismantled in a paragraph. You notice that? The dissonance is so heavy for an informed reader, if you are familiar with like, how the Bible, like how Hebrew names always have meaning, like baked into them, that's heavy here in this storyline. The tragic irony is thick even within the names of the people in the places. For instance, I'll just go through a list of some. The town that they're from, Bethlehem, in Hebrew, it means house of bread. But it's a place with no bread. Her husband's name, Elimelech, means my God, my king. But there is no king in the land. And God seems silent. He never speaks. Naomi's name means pleasant. But as you're about to see, all she feels is bitterness. Moab the place that they're traveling and sojourning in, the place that Ruth and Orpa are from, is a place that has an ugly, tattered history of hatred and violence towards Israel, which is Naomi's people. So the question the author is provoking, if you're sitting and reading it for the first time, the author is provoking this question in your head. Where is God? Where is God in these first five lines? Where is the fire of hope that will keep her moving forward? Because she's losing everything. All right, so let's pick up and let's look for it. So we're going to pick up now in verse 6. So this is Naomi. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But, so Naomi has a moment. She stops and thinks about this. And Naomi says to her two daughters-in-laws, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, 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 we will return with you to your people. But Naomi insists, doesn't she? She says, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said, nothing more. So opportunity of something possibly good is ringing out here. The Lord has visited his people and given food. And so they're starving. And so Naomi realizes there's no point in staying in this foreign country, Moab, any longer. But what about these daughter-in-laws? These widowed daughter-in-laws, these Moabite women from an enemy people land? What is she Think about them. What does she want to do with them? Well, she speaks very practically and sacrificially, mind you. She has no one except them, and she's willing to even go without them. Being a widow is bad enough, for those of you that don't know, in ancient Palestine. It's basically in a, in a, in a place where, as a woman, it's difficult or almost impossible to provide for yourself without being married. These, she is in a very tough spot. But Ruth and Orpah are still relatively young. And so they could go home to their families, they could get some help, and they could possibly get remarried. And so Naomi just thinks practically, she's like, this just makes way more sense for you. And that's not the only thing she's thinking about. She's also thinking about the fact that they're Moabites. And she's going back to the land of Judah. These people are enemies. And so she's already thinking about what will be when they get there. To carve out a life in Judah would be difficult for them, possibly even dangerous. There's going to be racial discrimination and possibly even violence was probably likely awaiting them. And you'll read about that next week and the week to come when she's out in the field. She'll say, be very careful as you're gleaning in these fields. The possibility of violence would have been heavy upon them. And so while Naomi loves these women dearly, she knows the possibility of a second chance is more likely to come in their own homeland. So she tries, she tries desperately to convince them to stay and encourage them in a different direction. And Orpa does the sensible thing. She weeps, kisses her mother, mother-in-law, and she parts her way and goes back home. But Ruth, as you saw, clung to her. She clung to Naomi. That word is instructive, you know. It's it's the same word if you go to Genesis two twenty-four and you read about the the, the what God commands about marriage, about like so I'll leave your father and your mother and it's the same word. Cleave, you know, clean. It's the same thing. It's this deep fidelity, this has said love, this kind of loyalty, this deep loyalty and love, this covenantal love. This is what Ruth is expressing, and that's what that that word is expressing. And so Naomi does her best to talk Ruth out of it, but Ruth's love and her loyalty runs deeper than self-interest. Is she risking her life? And this is something you need to be thinking about as you start to unpack the story of Ruth. Is Ruth risking her life here? Of course she is. She denounces everything. Stop and think about it. She's denouncing her culture, her family that she's from. She's denouncing her previous religion probably. She's does all of this simply because she loves and she loves deeply. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 19. Let's see where it goes from there. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, of barley harvest. So Naomi and Ruth enter back into the land of Judah, and as they enter into town, it creates a buzz. Now, many theorize that Naomi might come from a prominent family line because why is there all this, why all this town gossip when she arrives? Something is going on, but there is something really unexpected or confusing for the people that are looking at Naomi. They don't seem to even recognize her. Why not? I don't know. And we have to just guess at it. Maybe Naomi has aged a ton, you know? Um, that's like why I avoid going to any reunions. I don't want to see how quickly, you know, I don't want people to see how quickly I've aged. But suffering has a way of doing that, you know what I mean? Like, suffering has a way of aging us, and maybe, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe they're just shocked that, man, this poor woman has lost her husband, and she's lost her two kids, and this is just like, I don't even, is this, I can't believe that. It's so hard for me to grasp. I wonder if they're just shocked. Maybe they're shocked that she's got this Moabite tag along with her. And they're like, what is she doing? Whatever the case, Naomi doesn't want to be called Naomi anymore, does she? And as I said, Naomi means pleasant. But she doesn't identify with being pleasant. She ain't pleasant anymore. She wants to be called Mara and mara means bitter she's literally saying don't call me that call me bitter just I want that to be my name bitter and from naomi's perspective she has nothing she says that quote i went away full but because of the almighty i've returned empty i have nothing as far as naomi is concerned she has absolutely no fire left. She says, quote, she can't even say that she has any hope. I can't even say that. Naomi feels like she has nothing to look forward to, nothing propelling her forward, except probably just survival at this point. So, what do you, what do you take away from a story like that, at least the first chapter? It's like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> chapter one, it's horrible. Death, loss. What do you take away? You know? Because as, as Bible readers, as Christian people, you get the Bible up and you read that and you get through chapter one and you're like, oh, let's keep going. This is awful, right? But stop and sit in the chapter for a second. It's a horribly difficult chapter to read. It's funny, the book is called Ruth, but in many ways it's about Naomi. And you realize that when you read the storyline. It, and it's not because Naomi's a hero. She, she's no hero. But she's not a villain either. She's a human on a journey. Like you. Like me. Like, that's the reality. And it's a journey that she's on of life on the edge. She's, she's not totally settled in, in her heart Geographically speaking, even, she's sojourning in a land that's not her own. And she's journeying on a course of suffering. And I would say she's on a journey of dealing with the mysteries of God's grace. And you're, as a reader, what you're meant to do is read it as it's unfolding and watching from the bench seats, you know, like watching her not totally grasp it and watching it unfold. And you realize, man, she just doesn't get it. But you do, and that's the point. I will tell you up front, in case you don't already know, the story of Ruth, it will have a really beautiful redemptive ending, okay? So just sit tight, come each week. It'll be okay. The beauty will come. But the point here is that you have to wait for it. You know? You have to wait for it. In the meantime, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. The dire situation and backdrop of chapter one serves to heighten the need for something good to come. You know, the, the, the bleakness of the beginning is serving the fact that you're you're desperate for an advent of help. You're you're desperate for a rescue, you're desperate for, you're desperate that this woman will get some bread. You're desperate to see the advent of a bride. You're you're desperate to see an advent of a baby. You see? That's what the author's doing. It's really beautiful. But if you stop and think about it, there is good news in it. You know, the good news you see will be all the sweeter when, in the meantime, it seems really, really distant. But there is glimpses of it there. It's just that Naomi is struggling to see it, and and it makes sense, right? Like, so, so you, like. Think about it. Suffering, as you know, as a human being, is inevitable. You know, like it's just going to hit you. You can't opt out. Maybe you're in it right now. And if you're not, oh, wonderful. Wait for it. It's just going to come. It's not like I enjoy saying that from the pulpit, but I've learned it's my job. It's just unavoidable. Suffering will hit you. It's inevitable. No one goes unscathed. But here's the thing about it, and this is, a, this is an important thing, I think, that you grasp in the storyline of chapter one. Um, suffering doesn't blind you, and suffering doesn't have to rob you of hope. Suffering doesn't have to take the fire away from you keeping, moving forward in faith, all of that. Bitterness is different. Bitterness is different. Bitterness is different than suffering. Bitterness is where Naomi is. And that's a major point here in chapter one that I hope you would remember. And that is this bitterness will always blur, it will blur your vision what it does, what bitterness does is it creates a kind of grace myopia. You just can't see things right. Uh, Like a week or two ago, I had a sleepless night. And when I say sleepless, I mean no sleep. You know what I mean? It was like, I went to bed at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. At 12, 30 or 1, I just finally said, forget it! It's not gonna happen, and I'm going crazy because like if you're laying there staring at the ceiling, all you think well, all I think about is terrible thoughts. And so I'm just spinning, you know? And then the spinning makes you more awake. Anybody? No? Anybody that's got this stuff going on in you? You're like, man, he's got problems. I do have them. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm up all all night, all night long. You know what I mean? I got a couple lights in my living room that are on timers. So when they like came on, which they come on at five, I was like, uh-oh. Like, I've been awake all night. I do not remember that day. You understand what I'm saying? I got home that night, having now been awake for like 24 hours, and I looked at my wife in the kitchen, and this is, this is real. I said to her, I, listen, I was like, don't take this the wrong way, honey, but I, I, think, I, I think I connect with like women that just gave birth and they're not sleeping. I, I, some of the women are like, no, you do not connect with me at all. <laughs> listen, hang on. So what I mean is, is, I was like, the whole day, because of a lack of sleep, I was like, I realized very, halfway into the day, I realized this, I was telling myself this, nothing you see is real right now. Like, <laughs> you, you, you do, just, whatever you hear from people, you're going to take it the wrong way. Whatever, whatever you're thinking right now is not real. Like, you just, you start to realize, like, you don't see the world accurately when you're not sleeping right now. That's just a sleep issue. Bitterness does the same thing. You don't see things right. You just can't see clearly. Your whole world, you just have like a fog over you. It causes you, bitterness will cause you to see and create a world of ungrace, as Philip Yancey called it. That's all you see and that's all you create is a world of ungrace. Grace might be clinging to your tears. Grace might be clinging to your losses and your confusions. Grace might be clinging to your sins. But you just can't see it. You see, take note of this, and you have to jump to the end of the story, and I'm going to do that, spoiler alert, just for a second. But if you jump to the end of the story, Naomi will be looking at a grandson through Ruth. And interestingly, the women of the town will speak. These gossipers will gossip in a different way. They'll look right at her now. And they'll say this to her. This is Ruth 4, verse 15. He, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. But so listen to this. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. You see, that's the thing is Ruth has been there all along. Naomi just couldn't see it. Ruth was clinging all along. Ruth has been clinging to Naomi even when Naomi was tearfully, lovingly shoving her away. Ruth was clinging to Naomi while she was telling the town people that she feels empty. Ruth Ruth was standing probably right beside her while she looked at other people and said, I have nothing, I have no one. I wonder if Ruth was thinking, you have me. You have me. I love you. Or as I like to think of it, and this is how I would encourage you to think about it, grace was clinging to Naomi all along. Grace was there right in the feeling of emptiness. It just didn't fit her categories for grace. It, 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 it didn't look the way she expected it to look. And what I would hope that you might see is that the confounding beauty of this is that God didn't withhold the grace just because she was bitter. He was giving it anyway. God, God had Ruth cling to her anyway. And he's writing a different story right under her nose, you know, there's a story that Naomi's telling and it's half accurate and half not and that's what happens in our lives. You know, it's like Joan Didion wrote in her uh, essay, The White Album. We tell ourselves stories to live and then just a few lines later, she'll, she, in that essay, she says, "Like I'm, what I'm writing about here is the, the day, the time, when I started to doubt all the premises of the stories that I've been telling myself. There's a moment when you're called to start to rethink What's the story I've been saying? That's what grace wants you to do. And to be fair, I I, I resonate, man. I connect with Naomi. I, this is not me picking on Naomi and her bitterness and her blindness to everything. I know what it means to have blurred vision. I, I'm sure you do too. I know what it means to struggle. I know what it feels like to have, like, feel like you're being piled on by a world and by a God that seems absent and possibly angry. I, just the other day, I had one of those kinds of days in a petty way, to be fair, but like, I start my day off, and I was dropping my kids off, and my car broke down. In the driveway of my mom's house, she's watching my kids, and I drop them off, I run out, my car won't start. And I'm trying to push my car out of the driveway so it won't block their driveway. And you should picture me trying to push a car out of a driveway. Yeah. So at one point I'm literally have my mom in the car steering it and I'm like, turn the wheel! You know, and I'm shoving it down the street trying to get it parked. I go to work, I have a halfway decent day at work and then I get home from work and I'm like, I gotta tell my wife that my car broke down and as i come in i get i don't i don't think i'm in the house one minute my wife walks up to me and she says hey i'm really sorry to tell you this but my car broke down today <laughs> thank you for that makes me feel a sense of connection to you guys so we play a little like juggle act situation borrow a car cuz i got to run my kid to an extracurricular activity that's 30 minutes away and i drive my kid to the extracurricular activity and it's dark And I knock on the door, and the person running the activity says, "It's canceled tonight." Yeah. And my response was this, and this will—this is why my response was, "Of course it is." Of course. And she just looked at me like, "Oh my gosh, what happened to you today?" You know, because it—of course it is, because of course that this is what would happen today, because this is what God wants to do—is pile it on, give me more of it. It's petty and it's silly. Some people, friends, feel that way, and you might feel that way, in a way that is not petty but serious because you're infertile, you can't get married, you've got some kind of an illness, you've got something going on, and it just feels like God is relentlessly piling it on you. And you're like, when, is he, when are you going to stop? That's life. So we don't make fun of Naomi, We connect with Naomi. That's that's the thing. You should connect with Naomi. She is meant to be a fellow traveler for us. And so it's not uncommon to see this in the Bible. It's something that the Bible likes to talk about, actually. Naomi's declaration about God, you know, notice that Naomi does never denies God. It's not like she's saying, I don't believe in him anymore. She's just saying, what I believe about him isn't pretty. All he wants to do is bring calamity upon me. But at least she's dealing with God. And I really appreciate that about people. I love it when people come to the church and they're angry at God, but they're going to come to church anyway. Good for you, saint. That's saintly work. And so at least she's dealing with God. And it's not uncommon, and the Bible's full of this, her declaration about God is the same as Job. Job 27.2. Here's what he says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Same thing as Naomi's saying. These ordinary sufferers in the Bible serve us not through their perfection. They serve you through their imperfection. They serve you through their struggles. You know, have you ever thought about this? I was telling this recently. It's so instructive to me that that God puts words in his Bible about, you know, he's revealing himself to us. He puts souls in his word that were wrestling with bitterness. You know, we have prayers in the psalms that begin like this. This is Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? <laughs> will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Why why would God put together a book revealing himself to us and he put a book like the Psalms of people writing bitter, sad, confused complaints about him. Think about that. God is saying, here, I want to put a book together of a bunch of different, from a, written by a bunch of different human beings and they're going to reveal what I'm like, my character, and my story. And he writes the book and he has these people write a bunch of complaints about him. Why would he do that? Why would he have prophets? His prophets, like Isaiah, say this. This is Isaiah 45, 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. He's speaking for God. God's like, I want you to write this. God puts these stories in his word for this reason. Because while he sometimes remains silent, he is not absent. There's a difference. Let me say it again. Sometimes God is silent, but he's never absent. And the thing about this is, is his word is clearly, clearly not silent about his silence. Why? Why would he be so honest about something so difficult like suffering without getting answers? I think it's this, I think it's so that we become people that are reminded to cry, to complain, (laughs) to shout if we must, but we are reminded to keep watching and waiting, even while we do. We hope because his promises and his patterns that he's written out are more reliable than your perception than what you can see. An example, one of my favorite little stories of this is in, because you might be like, well, that's the Old Testament. It's not the new. Wrong. It's wrong. Here, let me just show you. This is a story you probably already know of. In Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman goes up to Jesus. She wants healing. And she approaches him. And she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Please help my daughter, Jesus. This is what it says about Jesus. But he did not answer her a word. Don't move on, sit with it, and just stare at it. He doesn't answer her a word. He stares at her blankly. We have these promises and patterns. Now, he does go on to heal, but he's doing something inside this woman and drawing her out when he is silent. He's doing a work in you. Now, here's why all this matters for this season. The Advent season, right, what we're in right now, at the core for Christians is about hope, hoping in a God that gave himself even though the world couldn't see him correctly. Jesus wasn't what people expected. Therefore, he was despised and rejected. And it's also about the fact that he will give himself fully one day so the whole world will see himself as he truly is. And so what that means in the meantime is that we wait, and this is important to know if you're a Christian, you wait with eyes half cloudy. It's important for you to... See yourself as one who doesn't see totally clearly. We have bad vision in a broken world. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, Christians claim hope. That's what we're talking about this morning. But remember, hope isn't something seen, right? Paul says in Romans 8, 25, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. If you see it, it ain't hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. But here's the thing that I'm trying to get at, and this is from Karen Swallow Pryor. Hoping with patience is not the same thing as oblivion or naivete. It requires reckoning with the world as it actually is, with reality. You look it in the face. And it's hard. I recently read that toward the end of the World War II, during the liberation of Europe, Allied troops found a crudely written inscription on the walls of a basement in Cologne, Germany. It was written by someone who was hiding from the Nazi Gestapo. And here's what it said. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when God is silent. Friends, to be Christian is to be a human on the way as Joseph Piper put it. We are on the road with half-fulfilled lives. We live on the edge. We live in tension. We we are fully loved, but not fully satisfied in a sense, at least not until he returns. The book of Revelation speaks a lot about ache and there is an ache that makes sense for the Christian because we still sin, we still suffer and we still get bitter at times. But the book of Revelation says that when Jesus returns he will, and you know this probably, he will wipe away every tear from your eye So what that implies is that you enter heaven having been crying. But the Christian is not without a fire for the tears. The the Christian has a fire that you have inside of you. And the thing about this is, is the fire that you have is not something you muster up. So please, please, don't hear this as a rah-rah speech. I'm not giving rah-rah speeches today. The fire you carry, if you're a Christian, is not something that you willed. It is something you received. It is the grace that clings to you even when you screw up. It's the grace that's clinging to you right now even though you're bitter and you're blaming everything, everyone, including God. In the same way Ruth clings to Naomi, Jesus clings to you even though you shove him away sometimes. And I get that. I have done the same. Grace clings to you even when you don't deserve it or you feel like you don't deserve it or whatever is going on in you. Grace is there anyways. It keeps coming at you because that's the kind of love that Jesus has for you. And if the more you see it, the more you recognize that, that I am loved in spite of who I am at times, you get fire. Deep within you. And so the fire is something you receive to give you hope. The fire is the promise and pattern that his grace will be clinging to you even when you're blind. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you're suffering a lot. I don't know if you're bitter. I don't know if you're coming this morning maybe you just feel really guilty because of the kind of week you had or the kind of yesterday that you had. Whatever it is, friends, you have a grace clinging to you no matter what you've done. No matter where you are. And the fire comes to and for us through a Savior Jesus who told us that while he's away, we are to take bread and wine. And we are told to remember that he suffered alongside us, that he suffered for us. And so we remember this that his body was broken and torn apart, and his blood was shed and poured out as an offering for forgiveness. It was broken and poured out as an offering for a future and for a relationship, for an eternity, with no more darkness and no more tears. And I would say this, and I'll end this way. Before you come up this morning, there's a station here and there's a station here that take part in the Lord's Supper, taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice, and reflecting on all this this morning remembering Christ's death until he returns. But I would just say this, as you sit and pray and you think before you come forward, that friends, whatever you're going through, you do have a fire inside of you. You carry it inside of you. But the thing about this is, is that once he returns, you won't need it anymore. You won't need it anymore. The hope won't be necessary because he'll be with you, looking at you face to face, saying, good job. Well done faithful servant. And this is what it says Revelation 21:23. 20, it describes the end with us Jesus living with us like living in a city with him and it describes it this way, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. He'll be the fire. He'll be the light. you won't need to hope and you won't need to grind it out anymore but in the meantime you do and so you come forward if you're a Christian and you take part in the bread and the wine and you give thanks and if that's not where you're at keep asking questions keep coming pastors will be in the room here to pray with whoever for whatever you might need let us pray father we love you this morning we give you thanks and may we think of you The fact that you came, you lived, you died, you resurrected, but in the meantime, we wait and we watch and we long for your return. It is hard for us sometimes. Help us in our sufferings. Help us in our sins. Help us even when we get bitter. Thank you for your grace. Whoever needs you to come and awaken an experience of grace, I pray that you do that this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.